you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table, but we'll be in Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 14. I'm not sure if you knew this, but there are a lot of normal, everyday things in your life that you are doing wrong. Um, the internet tells me that at least. Um, <laughs> For instance, if you peel a banana from the top, you're doing that all wrong. I don't know what you're thinking. You're supposed to peel it from the bottom, right? Which I still haven't bought into that one. Uh, I was told recently that I was eating, eating apples wrong, which I have bought into that one, that instead of eating it from the side, you should start from the bottom, and you can eat straight through an apple and eat everything except for the seeds and the stem. Unless you want to eat the seeds and the stem, I guess you can do that. But you should try that. It's... It's kind of fun. My wife and I were told uh, recently that we are folding our fitted sheets wrong, according to her Facebook feed, something on there. And so we stood in front of the TV, in front of the computer with YouTube, and tried to figure out how to fold these fitted sheets the way they told us to. And we realized that it's actually impossible to do it the way they did it. There must be some sort of camera trick, so we will continue to fold them wrong. Um, <laughs> and so in, in Luke 14, we... we um, we're going to see here, though, that the Pharisees are, we meet the Pharisees once again, and Jesus lets us know that in, in all their attempts to keep the law, their attempts to be honored, their attempts to be blessed, they are doing everything all wrong. They're going about things in the complete wrong way. Their natural ways of, of seeking after God and, and pleasing God, of wanting to be honored, of receiving blessing, everything that they're doing is, is totally wrong. And Jesus wants to help them and he wants to help us to see that in God's kingdom, selfishness never gets us what we want. That's the big idea for us this morning. In God's kingdom, selfishness never gets us what we want. We, we would assume that if we want something, if we, if we want to do what is right, if we want to be honored amongst others, if we want to be blessed, then we should be selfish. We should be self-focused. We should be consumed with ourselves. But Jesus tells us that in God's kingdom, selfishness never gets us what we want. I think we all need this message this morning. We all need to hear this truth because our sin nature and the culture we live in and Satan himself are telling us that if we want to be fulfilled, if we want to be happy, if we want to be blessed, then we need to focus on ourselves. You need to think about yourself. From a very young age, we, we act in this way. We begin to act in a way that focuses on me and what I want. You don't have to teach children to be selfish. Um, and then throughout our lives, we believe that if, if I'm not looking out for number one, then, then who is? Um, if I don't take care of myself, if I'm not promoting myself, then I will never ultimately succeed in life. Unless I make it a point to manipulate others for my own advancement, then I will be forgotten. But Jesus helps us and he helps the Pharisees in this passage to see that in God's kingdom, selfishness never gets us what we want. Rather, Jesus is going to teach us that, that it's in love for others. It's, it's in humility and it's in generosity to those that are in need that we will find joy and satisfaction. Look at Luke 14, verses 1 through 14 with me, and we'll hopefully see this come out. Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
but they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." We're going to look at this passage in in three parts. It should break down pretty easily. Uh, The first six verses are this healing that happens on the Sabbath day and what Jesus is trying to teach in that. Verses 7 through 11 are instructions to the guests at, at at a dinner party. And verses 12 through 14 are instructions to the host of that dinner party. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to see the desires of the Pharisees. We're going to see how selfishness doesn't meet those desires that they have. And then we're going to see what Jesus says will ultimately bring satisfaction of those things that they want. So uh, the scene is a meal. It's a meal on a Sabbath day, and they're in the home, it says here, of a ruler of the Pharisees, so a high-ranking Pharisee. The Pharisees, again, are Jewish people that were, they were very, followed the Jewish religion very closely, such that they actually created a whole extra set of laws on top of the Old Testament law so that they could make sure that they didn't break the Old Testament law. So they had this huge, huge part, section of laws that they were trying to keep. They invite Jesus to a meal here. We could probably assume that this is lunch. After Sabbath, just like we gather for lunch, um, sometimes on a Sunday afternoon, that's probably what's going on here. They invited Jesus over um, to come and to have dinner with them. But we're also told that the um, Pharisees were watching Jesus closely. They were paying careful attention to everything that he was doing. And their close watching wasn't because they just were so excited that he was there or that, you know, they wanted to be, they were impressed by him, but rather because they wanted to catch him doing something that, that they didn't like. Some fault that they would, could find in him. They were waiting to accuse him of something. And they really won't have to wait very long, actually. They can find something very quickly. The stage is set here for the first lesson. It says they're in this rule, it's the Sabbath. They're in a house with the Pharisees, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy, I guess, is an older term for uh, a disease called edema, um, which may still not be helpful, though there are lots of people here (laughs) in the medical field, so I'm not going to presume I know more than you, but edema is a condition that causes, is 
what I looked up, I didn't know this, that causes organs or skin or other parts of the body to swell due to the buildup of fluid. So fluid builds up, and maybe you've seen people that have legs that are swollen or arms that are swollen or, or different um, parts of the body are swollen up. And in Jesus' time, this wasn't just a disease, actually, but it was also something that was associated with uncleanness and, and immorality. So not only is this man... Um, in pain from this disease, but he's also sort of an outcast in society. And there, there he is standing in front of Jesus in this condition. Now, the other thing we have to keep in mind, remember, is that it is the, the Sabbath day. This is a day set aside for rest and for worship. This is the third time that we're seeing now this dilemma before Jesus, where there's someone who is sick, the Pharisees are there, it's the Sabbath day. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to heal this person? Well, if you remember the past two, then we kind of probably know what's going to happen here in this situation. But let's look at it here. In fact, it may be that this is a setup, that that the Pharisees had brought this man to dinner for the express purpose of testing Jesus. Well, let's see what he's going to do. Maybe we can catch him doing something something that against our laws again. So the Pharisees are there. You can see them just watching Jesus closely, and this this man with dropsy is standing before Jesus now. And what's going to happen? What is Jesus going to do? Well, he does what he always does. He asks a question. <laughs> Jesus loves to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Verse 3, Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. I think that's interesting, isn't it? They haven't said anything, but he's responding to them. That may be an indication that this is a setup. They've brought him forward, okay? So Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now this, this question is getting to the heart of a desire of the Pharisees, and it's this, the desire to keep the law. The Pharisees have a desire to keep the law. And Jesus' question is about what is lawful, what is allowed, what is right. Is it okay for me to heal this man on the Sabbath or not? And remember that the, the lives of the Pharisees were consumed with, with law keeping. That, that's what they did. That was their full-time job. But also remember that the heart of the Pharisee ultimately, deep down, somewhere in there, was this longing to please God. That they wanted to to do what was right. The Pharisees are very unlikable in a lot of different ways. But deep down, any Pharisee, even if some of us here who are Pharisees, deep down in our hearts there is a desire to please God. The problem is that the the Pharisees took their law keeping and they thought that their, their right living would bring favor with God. And so Jesus, a big mission of Jesus with the Pharisees is to to break down this self-reliance and this this arrogance. That's what he's doing so often. Jesus comes to all of us, any one of us, who thinks that if we do the right thing, that will make us acceptable before God. That will make us right before God. He comes to all of us and he exposes the sinful nature of our hearts. He reveals how far short we fall of the glory of God and perfection. Even here, the Pharisees should, should see how their law-keeping is causing them to, to not allow a man who is sick to be healed. And so Jesus always wants the Pharisees, he always wants, he, he wants us to, to see that right living is never enough to, to save us. I just want to remind you of that. Right living, doing the right thing all the time is not enough to save you. So Jesus comes to fulfill the law. He comes to keep the law in a way that none of us ever could. 
not only to keep the law for us, but then to, to die in our place because we are lawbreakers, because we have broken the law. The good news of Jesus is that He has made a way for us. And if we would reject our pride, we would admit our sin, then we will find hope in Christ. But Jesus also wants to help the Pharisees see that in their this desire that they have to keep the law, to please God, in that desire, they're going about it all wrong. He says, you guys are doing this all wrong. And so, he, he, he asked this first question, and what's the response of the Pharisees? They are silent. They don't answer him. Because either way they answer him, they're, they're wrong. If they, if they say, no Jesus, it's not right to heal on the Sabbath, well then they look like a bunch of insensitive jerks in front of this guy who's been suffering for so long, and now they say, nope, can't heal him, Jesus. But, but if they say, well go ahead and heal him, Jesus, then they look like they're going soft on their own laws and on their own rules. And so they do what any person would do in that circumstance that's filled with pride, you or me too. They just don't say anything. Well, maybe if I just say, say stay quiet, then we'll be okay. In the midst of their silence, Jesus takes the man, it says. There's, there's three verbs there, aren't there? It says he, he takes him, he heals him, and he sends him away. He takes him, he, he takes a hold of him. He touches this man. I would imagine maybe he touched the man where the swelling was, maybe in his legs or in his arms, wherever that was. And he touches him. And he heals him. He frees him from this this buildup of fluid that's in him. And then he sends him away. He sends him out. He lovingly and mercifully removes the pain. And then he kindly removes the man from the controversy that's now going to be surrounding the situation. He allows him to leave. And he leaves and he's free from the pain, from the disease, but free from the rejection that this had caused. The man is healed. And then Jesus, he's not done with the Pharisees, though. He's got another question, doesn't he? Second question, verse 5. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? He says, if you have a son or an ox that falls, aren't you going to, to lovingly and mercifully pull that son or that ox out of the well? Of, of course you are. He'd probably even seen them do it. But the text here says, verse 6, they could not respond to these things. They couldn't reply. Well, why couldn't they reply? Because if they replied, then it would prove that they were in the wrong I think this, the Pharisees are a great example of why some people continue to reject Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you continue to not come in repentance and faith to Christ. It could be that you are like the Pharisees. You have realized that you are wrong. <laughs> you understand the situation. You see it so clearly in front of you, but you are not willing in your pride to admit, I am a sinner. I can't do enough good things to, to be right before God. But, but you won't admit it. Because for so long you've said one thing. Just like the Pharisees, for so long said, this is the way that we're supposed to do things. And Jesus comes and he says, are you sure? And, and maybe they realize, ah, I think we might be wrong on this. But if we admit we're wrong, well, then we're going to look like fools in front of him. And they were not willing to do it. So many of us too, in our own pride, that pride does that. It blinds us. It causes us to, to persist in our sin. I think the focus here, though, again, with Jesus is that he's hitting this, their desire to keep the law. 
And he's telling the Pharisees, you're doing it all wrong. They assume that law-keeping has to do with, with personal holiness, with, with avoiding sin and making sure you don't do anything that, that displeases God. We've talked about this before, but it's worth mentioning again, that, that sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness, becoming more like Jesus, is not primarily or solely focused on the nose of Scripture. The things that you are not supposed to do. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you will be more like Jesus. But Jesus teaches us here that also part of Christ-likeness is saying yes to love and to mercy and to kindness. And that love, in fact, is a way to fulfill the law. We think of law as all the prohibitions. But when Jesus talks about the law, what's he talk about? He talks about love. When he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Our law-keeping flows from love for Christ, Jesus says. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Paul writes in Galatians 5.14, he says, The entire law is summed up in this. The entire law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love summarizes the law. And then hear these words from Romans 13.8-10. Paul writes in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I find that so encouraging. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Was it wrong for the Pharisees to to desire to keep the law? To, to walk in a way that would please God. No, it's not wrong to desire that, to want to please God with our lives. There's nothing wrong. That's a good desire. But they missed, and we often miss, the fact that, that sometimes the things we attach to the law make us not fulfill the law. They were doing it all wrong. Jesus says, if you want to keep the law, show love to others. If you want to keep the law, show love to others. So here's some questions. Have we made Christ-likeness, have we made growth and godliness all about the, person, the, the letter of the law? And have we missed the heart of the law, which is love? Are our lives marked by love and kindness and grace? Or does our faith sometimes even keep us from loving others? There's a place for personal holiness, right? There are some things that we should say no to. But when we say we follow Jesus, let's also follow Jesus, not just in holiness, but in love for others. We wake up in the morning, we're filled with this desire, God, I want to walk with you, I want to please you today. It's not just, well, let me check the things off that I'm supposed to do. I need to read my Bible and pray. I need to make sure I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. Yes, we we need to walk in holiness, but also we need to pray, Holy Spirit, will you bear the fruit of love in me today? Will you you bear the fruit in, in love for friends and neighbors, for my children and for my spouse, for my co-workers, for strangers, for for the sick and the suffering? Help me to love people because love fulfills the law. If you want to keep the law, if you want to Walk in a way that pleases God. Show love to others. And the party continues here. 
And another desire of the Pharisees is revealed in verses 7 through 11. It's the desire for honor. The desire for honor. Verse 7 tells us that while the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely, Jesus was watching the Pharisees closely, and he notices something. He sees grown men fighting over which seat they get to sit in. (laughs) Now, my kids sometimes fight over that, what seat they're going to sit in. This is kind of a dignified version of calling shotgun. Anyone play that game? (laughs) That I get the best seat. Or maybe you've gone to a concert or an event which has general admission, meaning every seat in the house is open, first come, first serve. And people line up at the door, and when the doors swing open, they just run like mad to get the best seat in the house. Maybe you've been at the front of that at some point in your life. The Pharisees are fighting to get seats of honor at this, this meal, probably closest to the host. They want to be seen as great. They want to be seen as, as honorable. They want to be, see, be seen as, as worthy of, of adoration. And they selfishly assume that, that to be honored is to sit in seats of honor and to be honored by other men and, and women in this place. And so Jesus tells the people that are invited to this feast, he, says, he tells them a parable, and the point of the parable is to say that, that the way that they are seeking honor is all wrong. You guys are doing it all wrong, he says. If you go to a wedding feast, he says, what you shouldn't do is try to get the best seat. Even if that chair is open, okay? So imagine you're, you're there and the table, you know, right by the head table, it's open. And, and you could go sit there. Jesus says, even if it's open, you shouldn't go sit in that spot. Because he says that the problem might be that someone more deserving shows up. And if someone more deserving shows up, then the host of the party is going to come up to you and they're going to say, um, well, we've got this problem here. I hate to do this to you. Uh, the mayor showed up. I invited him. I didn't think he was going to come. And lo and behold, he decided he was going to come to the party. And we don't, we're out of seats in, up front here, and, and so I need you to move. And we're getting really full, but I think I see a, a seat way back there in the corner, if you could just kind of move back there. And so you have to get up and take the walk of shame. Everyone has seen this happen. You, you, you have to go back, and you end up sitting at some table in the back corner by the swinging doors near the kitchen. And, and you know, there's no tablecloth because they weren't expecting they were going to need to use it. And, and by the time the food gets to you, they've got rolls and roasted potatoes. And, I mean, it's just a mess. You were at the front, and now you got nothing. You got demoted all the way down to the last seat in the corner. And everyone saw it. Everyone sees you. This is a terrible situation. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't, don't let that happen. Instead, pick the lowest seat. So take the lowest seat, and, and, and you'll sit back there, and, and everyone else can have the, the great seats, because it might be that when the host arrives, he's going to see you, and he's going to say, friend, what are you doing back here? Come here, let's find you a better seat up near the front here. And then instead of the walk of shame, you take the walk of fame, right? And you get to go all the way up to the front. And everyone sees you not walking to the back, but walking to the front. And you are truly honored. This is kind of difficult, though, when you think about it, right? What's Jesus trying to say here? Uh, I, I think it's interesting. Does he say there's anything wrong with being honored? He doesn't. He, he doesn't say... You guys are trying to be honored, and you, should, you will never get any honor ever in your life. That's not really what he's saying. He's just saying you guys are going about it all wrong. So what is Jesus trying to tell us? 
Let me read to you a paragraph from a commentator named Daryl Bach that was very helpful to me. He says this, Jesus' point is not that we should connive to receive greater honor. Okay, let's be clear on that. His point is not some sort of reverse psychology where, well, maybe if I sit at the back, then I'll get taken up to the front. So, in your heart, you're not humble. You're just saying, I'll sit at the back and someone will surely notice me. And they'll say, well, this guy doesn't deserve to be way in the back. Let's take him up to the front. So that's, that's the first thing we should, Jesus' point is not that we should connive to receive greater honor. Rather, he is saying that honor is not to be seized. It is awarded. That's good, isn't it? Honor is not to be seized. It's not something that we're trying to grab a hold of. But it's something that is awarded. It's something that is given. Jesus is not against giving honor to one who deserves it. But he is against the use of power and prestige for self-aggrandizement, for for self-promotion, for bragging. God honors the humble. And the highway of humility leads to the gate of heaven. Those who are truly humble persons recognize their desperate need for God, not any right to blessing. It's a good line there. Those who are truly humble persons recognize their desperate need for God, not any right to blessing. So, so the point isn't that we should trick God or anyone else into honoring us, right? But that we should recognize that honor is not something that we are supposed to take for ourselves, but it is something that is given. And ultimately it's given by God. Jesus is saying to us, if you want to be honored, be humble. If you want to be honored, be humble. This isn't a false humility. This is a, a submission to God. It's, it's trusting God. It's knowing that, okay, God will honor His children, and He's going to do it in the best way possible, in the wisest way possible, and in His perfect timing. I'm not going to seize it. I'm going to allow God to honor me when He is good and ready to. But when we, when we are humble, we see, we see our need. We see our, our, our great need and we don't assume that we should be honored above anyone else. We have faith. We trust that God, we, we, we give Him the task of taking care of who gets honored, when they get honored, and where they get honored. So, so we don't make it our goal in the church to always be in the front, right? That's not the goal. I want to be honored. I want to be in front. Not the front seats, but standing right where I'm at. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Nobody wants to sit in the front seats ever, so I know that. But So in the front here, facing out, the one that everyone's looking at, okay? So we don't, we don't want to do that. We don't seek our own honor, but we want, to, we want to faithfully trust God and trust that He's going to honor us in the way that He wants to. We don't assume that we're the greatest person in our home. <laughs> we don't assume that we, we should be the most respected person among our friends, that, that we're the best employee at our workplaces. But we realize that there, there are people that are greater than us, people they don't even know. Jesus says that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. I think there's application in the present, but I think it's also right to see a parallel to the kingdom of God here, isn't there? That, that at the great wedding feast, when all of God's children are gathered together, we will all be humble. <laughs> we will all, in a sense, be, be standing at the back, sitting at the back. And, and, and because of the love of Christ, none of us are going to be worried about where we sit. <laughs> it's not going to be like, I really want to be at the seat of honor. But rather, we're going to say, I'm just glad I'm here. Amen. I'm so thankful that God has invited me to this feast. Have you ever been to an event like that? 
I don't care if I have to sit in the nosebleed section. I'm just glad I got a ticket. And I think we will all enter into heaven, and that's how we will feel. And then Jesus will honor people. There will be people that are more honored than others. But it's not our job to take those places of honor. You think about James and John when they asked, who's going to sit at your right hand and at your left? And what does Jesus say? That's not mine to give. The Father will give that, and he will give it to some. And some will be more honored than others. And yet we will all be there and say, I'm so thankful that I just have a seat at the table. But some will be more honored. I'm reminded of the song that we sing, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Verses 2 and 3 say, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. The greatest joy of our hearts is not the chair that we're in in the kingdom of God, but that we're there at all and that we're there with Christ. And in light of that day, our our desire should be that He would be honored and, and that we would trust Him to honor us when He wants to. And that if we are to receive honor, it's only going to come as we humble ourselves. He summarizes it so well in verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the first desire we see is this desire to fulfill the law. And the desire to keep the law, to fulfill the law, is fulfilled when we love others. Next is this desire to be honored. And the, and the, honored, and the desire to be honored is met when we would humble ourselves. And Jesus addresses a third desire in verses 12 through 14, and it's the desire for reward. The desire for reward, for, for blessing or for repayment. So Jesus has given instructions to the guests at this dinner party, and now he's going to turn to the host, and he has some words for the host. He's going to give him some instruction. And he tells the host, he says, when you have a dinner party or a banquet, don't invite any of your friends, any of your family, or any rich people. You should invite poor people, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. That's kind of strange instruction, isn't it? So is Jesus telling us that you should never have a family meal? <laughs> that, that you should, if you're going to invite someone to your house, you should make sure you know how much money they make. Because, you know, there's a threshold here. If you make over this amount, then you are considered rich, and I'm not allowed to have you at my house. Um, or, or maybe that the next time you have a birthday party, you should not invite any friends. No friends. We're inviting only people who are poor, who are crippled, who are lame, and who are blind. Obviously, that's not what Jesus is teaching, right? Let's, let's be clear on that. We interpret the Bible literally, but we also try to understand what Jesus is, is trying to say. So, what's his point? I think his point is less about who is invited and more about why they are invited. Okay, so it's not who is invited, it's why you are inviting them. It's, it's, he's getting at the heart of this host, and he's revealing the hypocrisy of it. Because Jesus says to this man, in essence, you only invite people to your parties who are going to bless you later. Your hospitality is reserved for those that can provide some kind of benefit to you. This man wants a blessing. He wants a a reward. He wants to be repaid for his kindness. And the way that he has decided to get it is by scratching the backs of the people that may be able to scratch his back in the future. Now this probably makes perfect sense to us. 
Because we've all done this. <laughs> we've all done this. We, we show kindness to a person and immediately we wonder, how are they going to repay me for this kindness that I just showed them? Or maybe in the reverse, you, you were shown kindness. You got to go to someone's house for dinner and on the way home you talk to someone and you say, oh man, we got to have them over. And when they come, we can't have hot dogs because, I mean, did you see the steak that they gave to me? we got to repay them somehow because they showed so much kindness to us. This is how we operate, isn't it? It's how we think about things. We have some sort of log in our heads of credits and, and debits, and we know who we owe this much. Well, this person did this, and so i got to do that. And so we, we talk to our neighbors, and they have a pool, and we think, well, maybe if I share some of the tomatoes from my garden, then when they go on vacation, they'll say, hey, why don't you use our pool while we're gone? Oh, that's so nice of you to ask. I never thought, you know. Or, or maybe... Um, you have a friend who is rich, and you make sure every December, uh, the second week of December, that you invite them over to your house for dinner because, you know, every year they've given you a pretty nice Christmas present, and you don't want them to forget that they want to give it. Or maybe you take your boss a, a latte every Friday, you know, and you just thought I was thinking about you, but <laughs> just because you want her to give you a raise the next time your review comes. I mean, this is how we work sometimes, right? We like to disguise it, but... We have this system that we have. We bless because we want to be blessed in return. It's different in ways. It's not just in those circumstances, even within our families. Even with the relationship between a husband and wife. The relationship with, with children. We, we can act this way. This, we deceive ourselves in various ways. But, the, but the, the way Jesus says to meet this desire for blessing, this desire for repayment, is not through selfishness, but it's through generosity. If you want to be blessed, be generous, Jesus says. If you want to be blessed, be generous. What is generosity? Generosity is giving without expecting anything in return, which is the opposite, exact opposite of what this guy's doing, right? He's giving, expecting something in return. Generosity is blessing someone with having no thought of how that gift might be repaid. And generosity is really, really hard to do. It's hard to give to others and not expect anything in return. And so Jesus gives us a really practical way to do it. He says, find people to bless that there's no way they could ever repay you at all. They don't even have the option of repaying you. Find people that are poor. So if you bless them, they actually don't even have anything to give you back. People that are crippled, people that are, that are lame, people that that are in deep need, people that are blind. I don't think Jesus' point is when you have dinner parties, you should only invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. But I think a good application is have a dinner party, invite some poor people, invite some people that are in deep need, invite people to your home that can never repay you back, invite people to your home that don't have a home that they can invite you to later on. There is no option for repayment with some people. One of the key ways that we show generosity is through hospitality. Through opening our homes to people and inviting people in. I think we do this in our individual homes. I think we do that in our church. I I think that our Sunday night evening meal should and is always be open to anyone. Come in. Have a meal with us. and, And we're not asking anything from you. We don't want you to repay us. That should always be the heart that we have. As, as a church, come, be a part of us, and we're not asking for anything in return, because that's how Jesus has treated us. 
giving this way is is only possible through the through the power of the Spirit working in us. So maybe we can pray that this week. Lord God, help me to to seek out ways to bless others and not expect anything in return. What's a way that the Spirit might prompt you? Someone that you can think of, someone that you know that that maybe I can bless this person and and not expect anything in return. Maybe there's people you should have over for lunch or for dinner or take them out for, for, for dinner or lunch. That maybe you could bless someone that needs it in, in such a way that they don't even know that you did it. There's no option for repayment if they don't know who did the, who, who blessed the person, right? So, so you can bless people in that way. You can give to charity anonymously. Or if you do give to charity, make sure that you don't tell everyone about it. <laughs> There's, there's ways that we can do this. Or, or maybe maybe, you're, maybe you are a person that manipulates other people. Maybe you find that, as, that the Holy Spirit even now is saying, you do this a lot. <laughs> you give to be given to. You bless so that you will be blessed. I pray that the Spirit would teach us all that this week. I think we do that. We probably do it more than we think. Not just in giving of material things either. But sometimes we, we give to a spouse or a child or we give to a friend or a neighbor. We, we expect something in return. We should learn how to be generous. Because in God's kingdom, selfishness never gets us what we want. And what's interesting here is that there is repayment, right? Jesus again isn't saying it's, not, it's wrong to want to be blessed or wrong to want to be repaid. It's, he's just saying, if you get repaid in this life, that's fine, but that's all you're getting. He says that so often, doesn't he? And I was reading in uh, the Sermon on the Mount this week, and that's what he says all the time. Do this in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Don't let anyone know what, you're, what you are doing, and I will reward you when it's time. And he says that here. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I don't know what that repayment will look like, but it's going to look a lot better than whatever that person could give me right now. (laughs) If I'm just giving to get what they can give me, whatever they're going to give me is nothing in comparison to the repayment that Christ will give me at the, the resurrection in the end. So there is a blessing. God will repay us for our generosity. And He will ultimately be the one who's glorified in it. In God's kingdom, selfishness never gets us what we want. So if you want to keep the law, if you want to walk in a way that pleases God, then love others. If you want to be honored, it's not about selfishness in that point. It's not about seeking to grab honor for yourselves. If you want to be honored, be humble. And God will exalt you. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be repaid, if you, if you, want, to, if, if you want to get something, a reward, then don't seek it through selfishness. If you want to be blessed, then be generous. This is what the kingdom looks like. The beautiful thing about Jesus is Jesus doesn't just tell us this is what you should do. But He shows us, doesn't He? Jesus in His life lives the principles that He teaches he teaches us that, that it's in love that the law is fulfilled. That, that Jesus comes and He loves others. And in this situation where the law could come up against Him, He says, no, I will choose to heal this man because that's what the law is. The law is fulfilled in love. 
And ultimately, that's what the gospel is, that God so loved the world that He sent His Son, His only Son, so that we might have everlasting life. And Jesus fulfills the law, doesn't He? He fulfills the law through love. Also, in humility, Jesus is our example. We read that in Philippians, didn't we? Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't grasp for the honor. But instead, it says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. God, the God of the universe, humbles himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus humbles himself. And then he is exalted. Isn't that what the verse says? Therefore God has highly exalted him. Why has God highly exalted him? Because he humbled himself. And God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We follow the path of Jesus. Jesus humbles himself to the point of death, of laying down his life, and he is exalted. And Jesus is our example in generosity, isn't he? He gives to those of us who are poor and crippled and lame, and blind, those of us who can do nothing to earn our salvation. And Jesus comes as the most generous man that ever walked the face of the earth. He gives his whole self to us, expecting nothing in return, because we can give him nothing in return. We are the poor and the lame and the blind. Jesus doesn't expect any repayment from you, because you can't. There's nothing you can give to Jesus. So therefore, Jesus is the most generous man in the world, and Jesus, in that generosity, now is, is seated in the highest place. Jesus is in the prime seat at the wedding feast, okay? He is at the highest place. He's surrounded by sinners that have been made saints because of what He has done. Jesus is our example. He is our example in love. He is our example in humility. He is our example in generosity. And in all those things, He fulfills the law. He is honored. And he receives the greatest blessing in the world.